0: Now, Jesus didn't have a home of his own, right? He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But it, it, it does seem, uh, and it's generally believed, that he did sort of set up a home base, probably in Peter's house here in Capernaum, uh, which served as the hub for his ministry in this, the region of Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee and all around it. And so once again, this large crowd developed... Uh, And they filled this house so that there wasn't even room in the doorway. And Jesus was what? He was speaking the word to them. And this is Mark's way of, of reminding us that Jesus was doing what he said he came to do. He came to proclaim the message of God's kingdom. He came to preach the gospel and to call people to repent and believe the good news. And that's what he's doing here to the crowd inside the house. Now, crowds are sort of this character in Mark's gospel that we want to pay attention to. They're mentioned all throughout his gospel, and they act as as sort of this symbol of of fickle faith and and passivity. They often swarm Jesus for the miracles, but then they they rarely do anything in response to his message. And so in Mark's gospel, the, the crowds most often actually serve as an obstacle for those that are really trying to get to Jesus in true faith. And we see that here. The crowd had filled the house so that there wasn't even room in the doorway. And so these four men, who are, are nameless here, they, they were so determined to bring their friend to Jesus that they went up to the roof and they made a new doorway. Now, first-century Palestinian homes were typically these one-story buildings with a flat roof, and, and this roof um, was made by taking large beams and, and stretching them across the, exterior, the tops of the exterior walls of the, of the home. And then taking smaller poles and running those the opposite direction across the beams. And then taking a layer of thatch and putting that on top of the poles. And then covering it all with mud that would dry and harden. And that's the roof. It sort of served like this this deck almost on top of the house. Where they could go up, they could get some fresh air. They could dry their laundry. They could go and and pray and and do all kinds of things up there. So it was a useful roof. But nonetheless had lots of layers to it. And and here... um, this roof served these men as a way for them to bring their friend to Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine this scene for just a minute, okay? You're crammed shoulder to shoulder. I want you, I want you to put yourself in here as, as a, a member of the crowd inside the house. You're crammed shoulder to shoulder. Right now we're spread out. It's not too bad in here, right? It feels kind of nice and cool in here shoulder to shoulder with everybody. It's hot and it's sweaty. You're, you're sitting down. You're trying to just kind of inch your way closer to Jesus because you want to see him perform a miracle either on you, you've come for some reason, or, or you want to see him just perform a miracle on someone else. And while you're listening to him talk about the good news and kind of wondering when he's going to get on with the show, right, you, you, you start to hear these muffled voices come from above you and then you look up and you notice that the ceiling is starting to crack and these voices, they're getting louder and then some dust and some dirt falls into your eyes and so you turn and you close your eyes and, and you try to wipe that away and then as you do that, you open your eyes and you look back up and all of a sudden you see this, this man on a mat being lowered by four men who are synchronizing their hand movements, slowly letting him down so that they don't drop him and, and laying him at the feet of Jesus. Now, knowing what you know of Jesus at this point, as a member of the crowd, what do you expect Jesus to do here when this paralytic man suddenly is now in front of him? What are you expecting him to say to this man? You expect him to to heal this guy, right? It's it's probably the same house in chapter 1 where he, he was there and people just kept coming over and over and over, and he cast out demons and he healed people of their sicknesses and diseases. This is nothing new for Jesus. You're expecting to hear Jesus tell this man to get up and walk, and he's going to do that, but that's not the first thing that comes out of his mouth. That's not the first thing that he tells this man. What does he say in verse 5? It says, after seeing the faith of these men, Jesus tells the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, a common thought in Judaism of Jesus' day was that your sins were closely tied, if not a direct result, uh, of your sickness and your disease and, and your di- infirmities, okay? And in a general sense, sin has caused uh, the corruption of everything in this world. We understand that from the curse that God put on on everything because of what Adam and Eve did in Genesis, right? And, and, and uh, that includes our physical bodies. And so, but Jesus makes it clear in John's gospel uh, that a person's disabilities and diseases are not always in a direct result of their sin. He talks about that with the blind man. They ask him, Wh- whose parents sinned? This man's or who-, who sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus says, it's, it's not that. It's not that. It's actually not a result of his sin. This happens so that you might see the work of God, Right? Now, it's not clear, though, from the text here whether or not this man's paralysis actually was a result of any sins that he had committed, but that's not the main focus here anyway. The main focus is that Jesus is not simply describing this man as, forgive, uh, as forgiven. He's not just stating that this is a fact. Hey, you're forgiven. He's claiming to actually be the one to forgive this man's sins, now, that should be a red flag. That should be like us going, this is, this is like David Koresh and the Hail guy. guy. Like, this is some wacky stuff here. As a member of the crowd, and, and, and really, as the scribes that are sitting there, they hear that and the alarm bells ring in their minds. They, they, they sit in the room, and, and, and because all of Scripture is clear, that only God himself can actually forgive people of their sins, they, they're like starting to freak out a little bit here, Right? An Old Testament prophet who spoke on God's behalf might tell someone that their sins were forgiven, but it's always a, as a statement of fact. The prophet is always proclaiming that God has forgiven that person. The prophet never presumed to be the one to do the forgiving. And so these scribes, they're already beginning to dislike Jesus because the people said that he has more authority to teach than they do back in chapter one. And so when they hear him tell the, per, uh, the paralytic that his sins are forgiven, that only throws more fuel on this fire of anger that's growing toward him and so they don't they don't respond to jesus out loud yet though but they're thinking they're all thinking the same thing in their minds and in their hearts why does he speak like this he is blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, blasphemy is this act of slandering God. And the fact that the scribes accuse Jesus of it in their minds, this is significant here. Because ultimately, the charge that Jesus is going to be charged with is blasphemy by the Jews. And that's ultimately going to lead to them uh, crucifying him. But they're going to tell the Romans that he's the Messiah who's come to overthrow them. But for the Jews, he's, the, he's a blasphemer. And so it's important, like we're catching a glimpse of that right here and now. And then Jesus' uh, response only confirms what Mark has actually already answered their question in, in verse 8. What does he say? He says that Jesus immediately perceived what these men were thinking in their hearts, even though they never said it out loud. Now, we can, that makes us as the reader go, who can perceive a man's thoughts other than a man the man himself, and God, right? Mark is letting us in. He's answering their question before Jesus even gets a chance to in verse nine. Only God knows what's inside the thoughts of a man. And so that's precisely the point that Mark is making in in Jesus, uh, noting that Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so then his response in, in verse nine only confirms what Mark has already told us. Jesus responds to their question with a question. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, <clears throat> get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, their scripture, it's Old Testament, right? They don't have the New Testament yet, like we do, all of it. So their, their scripture, the main bulk of it is, is the law, the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then the prophets and the wisdom books. And in Deuteronomy, in the law, in chapter 18, verse 22, it says, when a prophet speaks in the Lord's name... And the message does not come true or is not fulfilled, that is a message that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Now, spiritually speaking, the answer to Jesus' question is that neither one of those is possible. Neither one of those is easier. They're both impossible for a person to do, right? Only God can forgive sins, only God can heal someone. Humanly speaking, though, it's easier for Jesus to tell this man that his sins are forgiven because there's no real way for people to substantiate that claim as true or false. There's no visible evidence of that. It'd be more difficult for him to tell the, per, the paralytic man to get up and walk because his authority to say that would immediately be tested by the response of the paralytic. He either gets up and walks or he doesn't. And then the people go back to Deuteronomy and they say, this man is not telling the truth. We don't need to fear him. Or they say, this man is telling the truth. We need to fear him. We need to understand what's going on here. But Jesus is going to use his authority to heal the paralytic, to actually reveal his authority to forgive the paralytic. So he says, in other words, he's going to show them that he's not blaspheming God because he is God. And so what does he say? Uh, uh, he, He tells this man to get up and walk. And what does the guy do? Immediately, Mark says, he gets up and walks. And so now that the, the claim that I can heal this man has been substantiated, but also that the fact that that happened substantiates the claim that I can forgive this man's sins. Both claims are, are uh, proven to be true by this paralytic man who gets up, takes his mat, and goes home. Now you may have noticed in verse 10 that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man instead of the son of God, which is what Mark likes to call him and what he called him in the opening line of his gospel. This is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself because it allows him to gradually reveal his true identity as God's son while remaining ambiguous enough to keep from drawing unwanted attention to himself as the Messiah. And so progressively throughout the gospel, he's going to start attaching other clauses to this son of man. It's going to reveal him to be the son of man that, that Daniel talks about in, in, in Daniel chapter 7. The one who's come to sit on the throne of David. The one who's come to, uh, to bring in the kingdom of God. Uh, and so this son of man, he tells the, the paralytic to get up, take your mat and walk. And immediately the man gets up and he takes his mat and he walks out of the house in front of everyone. Now no one in the crowd then can... Uh, including the scribes, they, no one can deny what Jesus has the power and authority to do. Instead, they're all astounded, and it says they give glory to God. They praise God because they've never seen anything like this. So in this story, Jesus reveal, or Mark reveals Jesus' identity as God who can forgive and heal sinners. And that's important for us to understand because our view of Jesus' identity shapes how we come to him. If we see him as a miracle worker, then we'll come to him in selfishness like the crowds with requests for personal gain. If we see him as a mere man, we'll come to him in self-righteousness like the scribes with accusations against his claims. But if we see him as God, then we'll come to him in faith like the paralytic and his friends, stopping at nothing to receive the healing that we need. Now, granted, his friend's Uh, of the paralytic, they they weren't bringing him to Jesus to be forgiven of his sins. They were bringing him to be healed of of his paralysis. But Mark points out that Jesus took note of their faith. There's a connection there, and that's going to develop over and again throughout this gospel. But he took note of their faith and not only healed the man physically, but that he also met the man's deeper spiritual need to be forgiven of his sins. So how do you come to Jesus? Do you come like a member of the crowd? Or are you looking for him to simply meet your physical needs or to entertain you? Do you just like reading these stories about him? Now, we need to bring our needs to Jesus physically, right? But we don't want to miss, like Paul says, to fix our eyes on things that are above. We don't want to miss the deeper spiritual needs that we have. Do you come to him like the scribe with doubts and accusations? Are you lumping him in with these other cult leaders? There's no way this is true about him or or picking apart this thing or that thing. Or do you come to him in the desperate faith like these four men and the paralytic believing that he's able to give you what you truly need even if you don't always fully know what that is. So we've seen in this story Jesus' true identity and and now we need to look at his true mission and, and Mark reveals that in the next story. So I want you to listen again for the four parts as I read Verses 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So once again, we start with Jesus teaching the crowd, right? But instead of being inside a house, now he's back out on the Sea of Galilee. And as, as we read that, it should, it should stir up these reminders of what we've already heard in chapter 1. When Jesus walked along the shore and called out to these four fishermen to follow him. And so something similar then happens here in verse 14 as Mark zooms in, again, on Jesus' interaction with an individual. Only this time it's not a fisherman that he calls, it's a, it's a tax collector. Capernaum was a, a border town town. And Levi worked as, as a sort of customs agent who collected these, um, these taxes on transported goods from both people who traveled back and forth across the border and fishermen that would come off the lake and, and, uh, to sell their goods. Jewish tax collectors were despised by first century Jews because they worked in conjunction with the Roman government. And for people who were expecting the Messiah to come and free them from Roman oppression, tax collectors only served as a reminder of Rome's unwanted rule over the Jews. Tax collectors were considered impure and unclean like the Gentiles. In fact, like a leper, like we talked about last week. If a tax collector went into a house, they determined that that house was now unclean. It was considered defiled by the tax collectors. They weren't allowed in the synagogue then, and they, weren't, and they were put to in the same category as, as thieves and murderers. Okay, And I think some of us can relate to the... I'll just, we'll keep going. Um, a couple of weeks ago we talked about respecting our, the authorities that God has put over us. Nobody likes tax collectors, right? We can can understand how the Jews feel about this. The fact that Jesus would call a tax collector, though, to follow him, and the way that he called these four hardworking fishermen reminds us that the call to follow Christ is not based, listen, on our credentials, it's based on his credentials. And and it serves to reveal the depth of God's mercy and his love that extends such a calling to even the most unworthy person. And so Jesus calls Levi to follow him, and, and Levi immediately obeys, Mark says. Just like the fisherman, he leaves everything behind, and he follows Jesus. And remember, this isn't just a command to follow Jesus physically to the next place. It's a command to follow him spiritually and learn from him and grow to be like him as his disciple. After Jesus' encounter with Levi in verse 14, Levi follows him physically, and they end up at Levi's house, and they have a meal now with many tax collectors and sinners. And the term sinners here uh, was used by Jewish leaders to categorize anyone that had a total disregard for the Jewish law and the traditions of the Jewish elders. So this included everyone from the criminal who just broke the law intentionally to the commoner who was too poor and too ignorant and uninformed to keep the law that they were supposed to keep or to keep the traditions that the, that the Pharisees kept coming up with. And Mark says that Jesus was reclining at the table with these people and eating with them. Now reclining uh, at the table, I don't know if you've ever tried to eat sitting down. It's not super easy. Um, but, but this was a, a custom back then uh, that was sort of this, this sign of friendship and fellowship with one another. It was, a, it was a, like a formal meal that they would have where the host would, would, would sit and recline with the feet toward the wall and the head toward the table, kind of an arm over the pillow, and then the, the honored guests would be on his sides, and then people would just kind of uh, recline around the table in, in this U-shape and share a meal together. And it was extending this hand of fellowship to one another over food. But to do it with tax collectors of all people and sinners, this was forbidden for a Jew to do. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish man because it was something that would defile the Jew and make him unclean because Jesus was having a table fellowship with sinners and tax collectors. That led to this other question and accusation by the religious leaders in verse 16. The Pharisees want to know why Jesus is eating with such unclean and impure people. And, and this time, they don't just question it in their hearts. They question it out loud. But guess what? They don't ask Jesus why. I, it doesn't really say, but I, I'm kind of guessing because he's in the house with these people eating with them. And guess what? If he's in the house and they're in the house, they've defiled the house. And so the Pharisees, they don't want to go in there. They're not going to ask Jesus. But because so many people were following him, maybe there's some outside. And so they go to these people and they ask him, Why? Does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And this is the first time that we get introduced to the Pharisees. This was a, a particularly conservative group of scribes, uh, of teachers of the law, who specialized in ritual purity and strict observance of the law. So they prided themselves on being ceremonially clean, and they were disgusted by the fact that, that Jesus associated with people who were defiled. In fact, even though they don't say it outright, the nature of their question Automatically assumes that their assumption that Jesus defiled himself by eating with these people. But as readers, we know from the story that we just read last week about the leper that Jesus isn't defiled by the unclean. He makes the clean, or makes the unclean clean, right? And so Jesus overhears the Pharisees' question, and once again, understanding their motives, not just hearing their words, but, but knowing their hearts. He gives them an answer in verse 17, and he does it using this this metaphor. He says, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners. So who does Jesus equate himself with in this metaphor? He's the doctor, right? And what kind of people need a doctor? Sick people. And who are the sick people? Sinners. Back in verse 38 of chapter 1, Jesus revealed the what of his mission. He said, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. The what of his mission is to preach the gospel. And here in verse 17 of chapter 2, he reveals the who of his mission. He's come to preach the gospel to sinners and to call them to repentance. And in chapter 15, we're going to see the how of his mission. He's going to die on the cross for sinners so that their repentance will actually be acceptable to God and they can be forgiven and healed. You see, the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, sinners and rebels and sick people are invited to the banquet table of fellowship with God in his kingdom. Jesus lived this life of total purity and righteousness, and then he took our defilement, our sin, our sickness upon himself, and he paid our penalty on the cross, and he rose from the grave to show that not even death could defile the Son of God. And that he truly does have the power to forgive and heal sinners. And now this gospel goes out into all the world so that they may know that the Son of Man has the power and the authority and is willing to save and rescue and heal sinners. It wasn't that Jesus came for sinners and not the Pharisees. He's not making that distinction there. Because the, uh, because the Pharisees were righteous. They thought they were. But self-righteousness is not the same thing as righteousness. Jesus knew that they were righteous in their own eyes, but they were defiled on the inside just as much as the tax collectors and sinners were. They were sinners too. And he knew that they were sick, even though they didn't know or didn't think that they were. But until they realized that they're sick, they would see no need for a doctor. Right? Right? No need to repent and seek forgiveness. You see, those who know that they're sick will respond to the doctor before those who think that they're healthy. And so in this story, Mark reveals Jesus' mission as God who will forgive and heal sinners. And that's important for us to understand because our view of Jesus' mission then shapes how we go out to others. If, his, if our view of his identity shapes how we come to him, then our view of his mission shapes how we go to other people. If we think he came for the righteous, then we're going to focus more on ourselves, and we'll we'll keep a tally of all the good things that we do, in order to and, and minimize the bad things that we do, and we'll try to make ourselves look better than the person next to us. And when we do tell others about Jesus, our message will be more about morality than it will be about salvation. And we'll shame people for their wrongdoings, and we'll tell them that they need to clean up their act, they need to be better like us, and then come to Jesus. This is not the gospel. That's not the mission that we've been given. One pastor put it this way. Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We could put it this way. Evangelism is just one sick person telling another sick person where to find healing, who the doctor is. How do you view Jesus' identity and mission this morning? Do you believe that he can forgive and heal sinners? Do you believe that he will forgive and heal sinners? Do you understand that, listen, you are a sinner? I am a sinner. We need daily cleansing from this doctor, from this Savior. Do you understand that, that you are a sinner whose sickness has been forgiven and healed? And that you don't have to work to stay clean. You don't have to earn what you've been given as a gift by the great physician. He's rescued you from spiritual paralysis and given you the call then to walk, to get up and walk and go with him and proclaim the good news of the gospel to others. Think about the people in your life for a moment. Friends, family members, co-workers, classmates, neighbors, anyone else that I've missed. Who are the spiritually sick ones in need of a doctor? Who are the self-righteous ones that think they're fine? who do you avoid? Who do you condemn? Who are the ones who are spiritually paralyzed and will never come to Jesus without your help? What obstacles are you willing to remove in order to help them see Jesus for who he is? Are there any obstacles that you're unwilling to move to help people see Christ? How does your understanding of Christ's identity and mission shape the way you view and interact with the people that he has put in your life? Does his willingness to come to you make you willing to go to them? Does the fact that he forgave and healed you drive your belief that he can forgive and heal them? Be careful, listen, be careful not to let your view of others and your view of yourself shape your view of Jesus. But your your view of Jesus needs to shape your view of yourself and of others. Maybe you do take the gospel to others, but but you're, you're making compromises in holiness in order to reach them. Listen, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. It's very clear right here, we just read that. But he did not live like them. He invited them to see him for who he really is and what he came to do. Do your friends and family members see the change that Christ is making in you or do they see you changing to be more like them? Maybe you've been a faithful witness to the people around you, but you haven't seen much response, and you're growing weary. Maybe, maybe you're even beginning to wonder if Jesus really is willing, if he really is able to forgive and heal these people. Friend, listen, he is. He is willing and able. Keep going. Remember the hope that you found in Christ when he rescued you. He is the rescuer. He will rescue. He's promised. He cannot lie. He will do that. He hasn't sent you out alone. He goes with you. He goes before you to prepare the hearts of those people that he's sending you to. The gospel really is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Rest in that power. Trust in the Savior and keep going. And maybe you're in here this morning and the Lord has opened your eyes and and the eyes of your heart to see that you have a sickness that you can't cure, that you're spiritually paralyzed and in need of spiritual healing. Listen to me. See the love of God that he would open up the roof of earth and send his son, lower him down and humiliate him on a cross That Jesus would be willing to take your weakness and frailty upon himself and give you his strength and power. That he would be able to give you his righteousness and take your sin. This morning, you can just say, I- I'm sick. I need a doctor. You can confess your need for the doctor this morning. You can turn from your, the sickness of your sin, and you can trust in his ability and willingness to forgive and heal you. Jesus' identity and mission Shapes our own identity and mission. And so we must clearly understand who He is and what He came to do in order to understand who we are in Him and what He's called us to do. When we see Him clearly, we will see ourselves clearly, we will see others clearly. We'll move toward others in compassion without compromise. And we'll stop at nothing to bring them to the one who has the cure for the sickness of sin because we believe that he can and we believe that he will forgive and heal them. Why? One, because he said it, but also because he has forgiven and he has healed us, amen? We're gonna finish our time together this morning with communion. And this is a reminder that as sinners, we've been invited to this table of fellowship with Christ through his sacrificial death on the cross. We're proclaiming together the wonderful news of his ability and his willingness to forgive and heal us and that we have been forgiven and healed. And we do this regularly until he returns and we join him for the actual wedding feast in His kingdom to come. It's because Christ has forgiven and healed us that we, we mustn't remain in our sin and sickness. Right? And so to take communion while you continually and willingly live in unrepentant sin is to eat and drink judgment upon yourself, Paul says. It's a denial of what Jesus has done instead of a proclamation of it. And so uh, communion is, is for anyone who has put their trust in Christ and is living in a lifestyle of ongoing confession and repentance. You're just simply living in the grace of God. It's not about you, it's not about your works. You don't earn communion, you take it freely as a recipient of God's grace. And so, if you can't proclaim that honestly this morning, listen, I don't know your thoughts, but God does. And that's not a, a threat. It's just a plea for you to be honest with yourself and with him. Take an honest look at yourself. Take an honest look at Jesus. That's one of our values here. And see, is your heart right for this? And if not, you don't have to sit there and wallow in shame. There's a Savior that's able and willing to forgive you and cleanse you and heal you. But if that's not you this morning, then we'll ask you just to simply abstain from taking the bread and juice and, and as the tray comes by. And we'll invite you then to spend this time considering the identity of Jesus Christ and his mission and to find forgiveness and healing in him. The ushers are going to pass the trays down. We're just going get we're, we're going to get it to everyone. This is only the second time we've done this in a service. So if you don't get it and you need it, Chase somebody down. Tear the roof off. The bread and the juice are together, so take, make sure you get two cups. We will take it together after some time of reflection as a body of Christ, proclaiming this together as one body. So just hold those together, and, and we'll come back up and take that.
1: like a hurricane, I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy, when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions. Are for me. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us.
0: On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the juice. Jesus, we are so grateful that you would come and humble yourself and be obedient even to death on a cross. That you would consider the fact that you're God as something that was not to be grasped, but that you would willingly come and take on the the body of a man, the nature of a servant, and suffer for us. We thank you that you can and you will Redeem your people and you will do it for your glory alone so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father we long for that day and until that day comes would you help us to be people who know who you are and who are clear about the mission that you have given to us to take this good news of hope to the world around us so that we can glorify you here and people can come to know you and find healing and forgiveness in the great position. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.